Welcome to Mommy's on a Call, your sacred space to laugh, learn, and feel like a real grown-up human for a hot minute. I'm Stephanie Uchima Carney, a mom of three under six, serial entrepreneur, business strategist, and donut connoisseur, just trying to get through the day one cold cup of coffee at a time. I believe that with more intention, a positive mindset, and self-care, it is possible to thrive in motherhood, business, and life. My mission is to uncover the daily rituals, life lessons, real-life tactics, and favorite tools to inspire and empower you, mommy, to get the most out of life every single unpredictable day. So grab your headphones, tell your kids you're on the potty, and tune in weekly for some laughs, knowledge bombs, and plenty of real talk with real moms, and maybe a dad or two. Welcome to the Mommy Pod. Welcome back to Mommy's on a Call. Today, I'm bringing to you Dr. Amy Hoyt. Dr. Hoyt is the founder of Mending Trauma, a digital mental health company that specializes in trauma recovery and is also the co-host of the Universe is Your Therapist podcast with her sister. Dr. Hoyt is certified in trauma and traumatic stress studies. And what I love the most about her work is that she does it from a whole health and holistic psychology perspective. She's passionate about teaching others to reprogram their brains and heal their nervous systems so they can overcome thoughts, triggers, and behaviors stemming from past trauma. On top of it all, Amy is a mom of five, three of whom have special needs. Wow. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. It's Or should I call you Dr. Hoy? I'm not oh, really call sure. Call me here. Amy. <laughs> call me Amy. I only pull out that doctor, you know, when I, <laughs> when I need to. <laughs> well, Amy, I was curious, what is your biggest mom win of the week? Oh, goodness. Oh, this is huge. Okay. I could cry about this. So one of our kiddos is visually impaired. And we uh, were told that driving would be very, very almost impossible for him. Well, we found a low vision ophthalmologist who has been helping him. And he qualified to get a restrictive driver's license with special telescopic lenses. Wow. I know. And so he got his permit yesterday. And there was a lot of tears and just knowing his world is going to be a little bit bigger yeah, than public transportation allows. That's amazing. So like, how does that work? Like telescopic lens, like how does he drive around? Yeah. So, well, we're just, you know, getting into this world of low vision drivers, but the glasses that we, um, that were prescribed to him and that we ordered, they look like glasses you and I would wear, but literally in the upper portion are two little telescopes that poke out about an inch. I know it's so interesting. And so when he looks through those, he's able to see street signs. And then when he looks back up, they um, magnify other parts of the road. That is the coolest thing. Yes. Wow. And so all his life, he's been a little visually impaired. Correct. It's his retinas. And so, um, you know, he learned to walk with a white cane. Vision continues to develop until you're about five or six. So he was pretty, we would, we would consider him blind. He is legally blind, but he was functionally blind when he was young. And then as he got older, his vision improved and stabilized, but driving was never on the table. So we just were so thrilled to work with a specialist who he'll take special classes to make sure he knows how to use the telescopic lenses, but it's just, it's such a gift. 
Oh, that's amazing. I know. I It's so interesting though, because I feel like 16 year olds or 15 year olds these days, they don't get their driver's license. Uh, <laughs> at least here in Los Angeles, everyone, I think my cousin didn't learn how to drive till she was 21 because she, there's Uber and Lyft. Yes. And so, but for us, I felt like the minute I could get my permit, I got it. The minute I could get my driver's license on your birthday, you make that DMV appointment. 100%, and yes. so for me, I think that's the most liberating thing. It's a independence and freedom. And for a kid, it's so empowering. Yep. But I'm curious for teenagers these days, like, is it still a thing? Yeah, I think it depends on the teen. And I think it depends where you live. So when we were living in Northern California, that's the trend I saw as well. And now that we live in a more rural area, we're in the Ozark Mountains, there's no Uber. There's no <laughs> I mean, there probably is, but it's not super accessible. If you actually want to get away from your parents, you have to drive, <laughs> which is awesome. True. Well, congrats. That's a huge mom win and a family win. And to give the audience a little bit of context, can you kind of explain the dynamics of you and your partner or what does your family dynamics look like? How many kids you have five kids? What are their ages? Just a little bit of background. Sure. So my husband, Kevin, and I have been married for, let's see, almost 23 years. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I joke we're in therapy every five years to tune up the <laughs> the skill set and remember why we like each other, but we do really, really like each other, which is, which is a, a wonderful gift. We have five children. Our oldest is 19 and he's actually serving a volunteer mission right now for two years for our church. And so he is, he's been gone for six months and that's been really interesting and fun to see him go serve and just get out of, I think the typical mindset of an 18, 19 year old, you know, and then our next um, child is 15. He is our child that just got his permit yesterday. And then we have a 13 year old and he has autism and he's moderate on the autism um, spectrum. And then we have twins who are nine. Wow. Yeah. Um, one of the twins is profoundly deaf and he benefits from cochlear implants. And then we have his his twin is a girl and she is typical. So we have two typical children in our family. And then we have a myriad of different needs and abilities. Interesting. Wow. And so for the last, I mean, you've been handling all of that as a mom and also having a professional career. Also, what do you do, I guess, on your professional side and a little bit of backstory on how you kind of got to where you are today? Well, I, I got my PhD in 2007 and I immediately went into teaching and I was teaching in Northern California. Um, I taught religion and ethics. Just say one second. You got your PhD while you had kids then? Yeah. Wait, yeah, I, I'm doing the math here <laughs> yeah. and I'm like 19. Wow. Yeah, so you were pregnant. in school. <laughs> yeah. I was pregnant with number two and I finally graduated. So wow. how was that? Do you suggest going for a PhD when you have kids? Oh my goodness. You know, I, people ask me all the time, should I get my PhD? I'm like, no, <laughs> not unless you are so in love with your subject that you can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> it's too much work. <laughs> it's a passion of mine. And I was originally in gender studies and then my PhD is in gender and religion. And so that was, I always was so curious about how women in particular navigate faith and spirituality and religion, given 
all the different structures that we have, patriarchal and otherwise, that we kind of bump up against. And so when I graduated, I just assumed I was going to be a professor forever and ever. And I loved teaching and I taught for 17 years. And the last maybe five years of being a professor, I started doing a research project in Africa. And I was able to put together a team of researchers from different universities and different countries. And we studied national conflict and mass trauma and how that affected women. And what we wanted to know is, were they were they using their belief in a higher power in God or whomever their higher power was to navigate that? Was that helpful or not helpful? And so as I spent all those years interviewing um, people who had survived genocide and apartheid, I realized that my passion was really more helping the individual. And that while I loved the research and it was interesting, what I truly loved was interviewing these women and speaking to them. And sometimes it's not like I had anything profound to offer at that time. I hadn't been formally trained in trauma yet. I just knew intuitively that I wanted to know their stories. And as they would tell me their stories, just the act of unburdening themselves, they would literally have a sigh of relief as they left the interview. And of course, I felt like I wasn't offering enough, <laughs> but just having someone listen to them. And so that's when I started looking at trauma as a, in an individual sense and um, started shifting my career and went and got certified through Bessel van der Kolk's organization and really started talking to my sister and my sister-in-law, who's an MD, um, and realizing we'd all been working around trauma our whole careers and that we should probably join forces and, and start helping people individually because that's what we love to do. Wow. And so I think I was listening to a podcast episode of yours and, you know, you and your sister define trauma and it doesn't have to be this huge genocide or big event. Yes. And I'm asking it from a point of curiosity because I took your trauma quiz just for fun because I was like, let's see what she does. Okay, let's yeah. take this trauma quiz. <clears throat> I personally have thought I didn't have any trauma. Like I had a great childhood, you know, two loving parents, like education, all of this stuff, never have been sexually abused or, you know, like the big things that you think of trauma, physical, sexual, all of that. Sure. And all of a sudden it says you have trauma. I'm going, excuse me, I have trauma. <laughs> like, and then it's like, oh, are you a perfectionist? Are you all this? I'm like, um, okay. So <laughs> I didn't realize that these are symptoms. So I'm curious, what is your definition of trauma? And kind of like, how do you know then? Like, I didn't think I had trauma. And like, so how do you know that like when, where, or like, how do you even go back? Cause now I'm sitting here curious going, I don't remember anything. So yeah. can you go a little deeper into what trauma means? Sure. Those are great questions and important questions because I think, I think the word trauma can be really scary. And the first thing I would note is that in the research literature, the term trauma is used interchangeably with what we call toxic stress. And so when you think of trauma and not as simply an event, it can be, but anything that overwhelms your nervous system to the point where it kind of gets stuck, you get revved up and stuck, or you, you know, it really depends on what your trauma response is, but essentially trauma or toxic stress is a event or a pattern of events that can overwhelm your body and your brain, your nervous system and your brain. And to the point where it alters how you approach the world and how you think about yourself. And it doesn't have to be some big event. 
but it can be, I think what can be probably more helpful is to think of it as a nervous system and a brain. I think keeping it more clinical helps to take some of the sting out of it, right? Because trauma is like, what? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I mean, when you hear trauma, you think like literally like blunt force, like something really yes. big. Yes. And it's interesting to think of it about toxic stress. And I'm wondering, because I see a lot of common characteristics that like I may suffer from in moms or like you know, a lot of, I talked to a lot of mom founders, high achieving moms, women, what are kind of, you were saying there's different types. So what are kind of the different types of trauma that you see? And also like, what are the common symptoms in say moms who may not, who may be like me? I mean, COVID was maybe traumatic, but I don't think my yes. trauma came from COVID yes, because yes. I've had these patterns my whole life. So what are kind of the different types of trauma or toxic stress? And then what are common, like, things that you see across the board? That's a great question. Well, most of us have heard of the fight, flight, freeze response, right? When something becomes overwhelming or there's a very bad event that happens, even a car crash, right? So those are responses to an overwhelming event. When we look at trauma responses, so we're not really talking about fight, flight, freeze. Those are in the moment responses, but what happens is in order to avoid feeling that pain again, or that vulnerability, and let's take a car crash, because that's something pretty benign. And I don't think there's a lot of shame in car crashes. So you've had a car accident, maybe you froze, you were maybe a little bit out of it, you know, you're a little disoriented. Fast forward a year or two, you hear the sound of crunching glass. And all of a sudden, your body transports you subconsciously, it's not even a conscious awareness and you start to have heart palpitations or you start to feel clammy. These types of reactions can be felt in our body. And so that is the first type of trauma response, I would say is called somatization. But apparently I have. <laughs> oh, okay. It's, it's one of the most common between avoidance and somatization. I think it's like neck and neck. We see about almost 40% of people with somatization and then 40% with people with avoidance. So somatization basically is just, it's the things that we don't want to feel again, getting stuck in our body. The thing that is so fascinating about trauma in particular or toxic stress is that when we don't address it, it doesn't go away. It just gets kind of trapped in our body. And that can be, for me, how it shows up as a mom is at dinner time, when there's a lot of crosstalk, which I want, I want them to talk to each other. I want them to have fun and a lot of laughter. My ears start ringing and I start blinking because it's so much noise. You know, those mom moments when they're having fun and you're like, I shouldn't be annoyed, but I'm super annoyed. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> oh my God, just hide me in a closet. Like go away, lock the bathroom door. <laughs> yes. Yes. And they're not fighting. They're having a great time. So that to me indicates my nervous system is overwhelmed. And can I identify the exact moment that it became overwhelmed? Um, not really. I mean, I think that there's probably some relation to fighting in my childhood home and chaos, but they're not fighting. And so when we think about it like that, I think the role of motherhood can be extremely stressful. And I'm not saying motherhood equals trauma and motherhood equals toxic stress. I don't believe that. 
I believe that motherhood without without any sort of self-care mechanism or any sort of support community can lead to those same responses. So that would be somatization is the first one. And um, the second one is avoidance. And again, anyone can go take the quiz. And after you take the quiz, it'll tell you, you know, the different characteristics. But avoidance could be stuff like over drinking. So I don't know how many people, I mean, I know hundreds of people that, especially during the, you know, COVID pandemic, a glass of wine was not enough at the end of the day to take the edge off. And it was like, I'm going to have one glass and all of a sudden the bottle's gone. And so you don't want to feel it anymore. You're exhausted. That can be avoidance. Do that a lot in mom culture too. Like my wine, like to, yes. hundred percent and no judgment. I'm in recovery now and been sober for 11 years. And I'm absolutely so grateful for my sobriety. And I have zero judgment to anyone who's still using that glass of wine. Cause this is a hard gig <laughs> life and motherhood. <laughs> Um, and then we have um, intrusion and that can be like subconscious flashbacks. Um, it can be thoughts that you can't get rid of about something hard that happened. And we have cognition and mood and cognition and mood, I think show up sometimes, especially in um, postpartum where you've got some ruminating thoughts, you've got anxiety and depression. And then we have, I know I'm missing one. Oh, arousal reactivity. Okay. This was my favorite when I, before I went into recovery yelling, I was a yeller. Ah, a lot of people though are like, that's, yes, it's so hard not to lose your crap. Right. Yeah. And so that can be arousal and reactivity. And it, sometimes it comes out of nowhere and still to this day, you know, someone will say one of the kids will do something. And my first reaction is that that real, I want to yell. And then I'm like, Nope, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> do my breathing. And then like, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a lot of parents have like almost like a temper or like they snap really fast. Cause if they're triggered by something, it's like, they just lose it. Like impatience. We, I guess we chalk it up to different like excuses, almost like, yeah. Oh, well they were just taking too long. I'm really impatient. They weren't putting on their shoes. So I yelled, mm-hmm. but interesting to correlate that with it could be a trigger for something else that's deeper. 100%. And what ultimately what it means is that your nervous system is pretty overwhelmed in general. And so small acts that are super annoying, but still not traumatic are bubbling up and causing your nervous system to go over the edge. That's really what's happening. And I love you were talking about kind of the awareness within your body and you feel this and then you're able to kind of take a step and do something like breathing. So I want to step back into that. Like, what are some of the awareness mechanisms? And then what, like maybe three things you can do as like, you know, a crazy mom in the middle of things to, to kind of calm that. Absolutely. So my first tool in mom life is definitely breathing. It's habitual now. So sometimes I catch myself doing it and I don't realize I'm doing it, but starting out, it wasn't that way. And so in order to get to the point where you create just that teeny space between the moment where you want to yell and then the actual behavior you choose to do, we have to employ what's called being the observer and being a compassionate observer. So I would say step one is to get curious about your behavior. And so it has to be done compassionately. We call it benevolent curiosity. Interesting. Why am I wanting to yell? Because his shoes aren't on right now. So 
by doing that, it takes you into an observer role, which gives you just a millisecond to choose how you're going to respond. And so that's a really powerful step. It was like, what happens if you're seeing red and nothing else? Oh, I know, right? Yeah. And and this, and this takes time. And so that's also compassionate self-awareness. You're going to lose your stuff. And then you're going to repair and, and studies and research and my own experience, and I'm sure yours show us that it's the repair that counts. We're all going to lose it on our kids. Apologize, hug them when you've calmed down and you realize you've made a mistake, make the repair. They can handle it and they will appreciate it. And using yourself as an example of what not to do and saying, I'm really sorry. I wanted to handle that differently. That is going to teach them more than always being the perfect parent is ever going to teach them. So I would say the first is definitely benevolent curiosity and kind of being the observer. The second is breath work. I love breath work so much. It's changed my life. I love the double breath sigh, otherwise known as the physiological sigh. And Andrew Huberman. Okay. I was going to say, which one's this? I know a bunch of different breath work, but which one's this? Okay. So it's, it's like from the, I think it's the 1930s is the first time we see it in the, in the scientific literature. It's called the physiological sigh. And then Andrew Huberman kind of popularized it last year on his popular podcast, the Huberman lab. What we do is we do two inhales right away without an exhale. And then we do one slow exhale through the mouth. So two inhales through the nose, like. And then one exhale through the mouth and you repeat that. And it's the act of filling up the air sacs in your lungs to capacity and then holding it before you exhale. That will actually really help calm you down. It's amazing. Wow. Because it activates that parasympathetic, I think, nervous exactly. system. You the other one I really like is Andrew Weil, Wheel Wiles. He yeah. does a four, seven, eight, where yes. you like inhale for four, hold for seven and exhale for eight. And that's yes. also, but I love breath work because I think it takes that pause, but it also activates that other, the, the repair system in your body. Because your body wants to repair, it wants to calm down. We have to just give it some help in those moments. Yeah, absolutely. And then I would say the third step, I don't know, I would say, I would say repair would be the third step because we will never be perfect parents. And the illusion of perfection is actually going to keep us really stuck in the habits that aren't serving us and they're not serving our children. So I would say repair because you're going to lose it and you're going to make mistakes and just repair, repair, repair. And that's what I would say the third step is. Nice. So now I want to talk a little bit about like, okay, so we got kind of that, that sense of the repair, like what happens when you yell at your kids, but now like say you identify, you have some sort of trauma. It's not necessarily affecting your kids, but it's now affecting your, your body. So when I thought about somatic, I was like, that's interesting because I have spontaneous health conditions like random tumors or things that literally are unexplained. Like I just got a CT scan the other day because I thought I had a hernia from all my surgeries and realized I have something else now. And I'm just like, where is this coming from? And so for you, I'm curious about like your beliefs behind any sort of like what you can do in your body to release any of the physical stuff um, besides in the moment you know, in the moment you're taking a breath and you're doing that, but like what happens in the general day-to-day everyday life, apparently you have some sort of trauma. How can we go about making steps towards 
fixing that. And then I also want to talk a little bit about, because you do a lot with like holistic and like body work and you were talking about intuition, but it's interesting because you also mentioned the church and spirit. So we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but I do want to talk about your, your kind of like belief systems in that. But then first of all, about how do we go forward mending any trauma? Yeah. So thank you for being so transparent about your health journey. I think that's so beneficial for people to know. And in terms of somatics in general, I believe so firmly that when toxic stress or trauma gets stuck in our body, it just starts wreaking havoc and we're out of balance and our body's trying to figure out what's going on. And we see time and time again, that when we go into the body, repair can start happening. And this is not an overnight process, but we have, I would say one of the most transformative somatic tools that I think I've seen the most miracles with in terms of physical health as well is meditation. I'm actually doing a meditation program right now to get certified because I'm very fascinated by oh, it. Yeah. It's, oh, that's it's wonderful. been so helpful. I actually, I was telling my husband last night, I was like, ironically, meditation is the only thing that I can like really cling on to that really I feel like helps me become a better parent, but also yep. just like calms my system. That's right. That is exactly right, Stephanie. It actually will calm your nervous system. It will completely rewire your brain actually over time. And this is not just, you know, woo woo. This is in the research. It's literature. It works. I've been following Joe Dispenza for several years. I've gone to his meditation, you know, weeks and retreats, and it's changed my life. The very first time I was able to have a longer meditation. It took me a while to work up to it, but I had a physical repair of some damage that was done when I was a child and was abused. Oh, wow. And I felt it. He does a lot of work with energy as well and kind of recognizing energy as you are meditating. And I felt it and I knew it. And then my intuition confirmed it. And that was that it was done. And that was it was just a miracle. Were you able to like release? So I, I, you don't have to, if you don't yeah. want to, but what was the trauma you were faced with? Did you know you had that trauma or did it I like did. surface? Yeah, through it? I okay. was sexually abused as a child by a foster brother who came to live with us, who was older and I was eight years old. And so I, it was in the pelvic region that during the meditation, it completely shocked me. It was it was so unexpected. And so it was like a energetic release of pain that I didn't know I still held on to. And it was just, I don't even know how to describe it. It was just, you know, as you go through the different, I think he calls them. So we know them as chakras in some practices yes. and he calls them energy centers, but you can feel kind of the meditation and the energy working and you, and it almost is physical how you feel it. And then when it came down to, I think, I can't remember which energy center that is for Joe Dispenza, but it was just a very powerful release of pain and physical pain and emotional pain. And it just catapulted my own personal healing journey. And had you gone to say, quote, therapy, like the, yeah. the generic therapy yes. that we think we see a therapist, we talk out our problems, we yes. deal with it. Yeah. So this, the body part 
yes. is really what shifted. Yeah. Well, what's so interesting, Stephanie, is that, yes, I'm a huge believer in talk therapy. And what I realize now after being certified in trauma and doing years of trauma work is what the research shows is accurate, that talk therapy is not effective for trauma. It can be effective for relationships. It can be effective for self-worth. It can be effective for a lot of things, but because during trauma or extreme toxic stress, our region of our brain called Broca's region is our speech center. It shuts down. And so you can't often articulate exactly what happened to you, even though you remember it, forming the words to articulate, it is almost impossible because that region of your brain is shut down during that event. Ah. And so research shows it is the somatics. It is the body work that is the gold standard for processing trauma because you can't talk about it. Isn't that interesting? That's so crazy. Well, one of my, my best friend is um, in Reiki. And so yes. she does that. And, you know, a lot of people say like, oh, what's this like woo woo stuff? But she's like, no, like you hold energy, like yep. it, and you can heal a lot of that trauma through moving that energy and releasing, which brings me to my question for you is like, you know, your podcast is universe. You talk a yeah. lot about, about almost like woo woo-ness. Yeah. But I know that may not have been the case growing up. And you mentioned even your son went off for the church. Yeah. They're two very different things. And so totally. I'm asking because, you know, there are a lot of moms out there who may not drink the woo-woo Kool-Aid as much as I have yes. or whatnot, who may be yes. like, I don't, you know, whatever, I'll see a therapist or I take this drug or whatever. Yeah. I'm curious for you because I also know that the church is a very like structured. Yes. So how does that work? <laughs> how is that? A, yeah. How does that work in your life? How yeah. do you work with, I guess, women who aren't also open to maybe this like woo side? Yeah. I'm curious about that. No, it's a great question. It's something I think about a lot. And it's something I maybe over explain a lot when I'm talking to people, because sometimes I don't have it clear in my mind how it all works for me. What I can articulate to the best of my ability is that I was raised in a religious home because of the trauma that I had as a kid, I really disconnected from a relationship with God and I felt worthless and I, I was not drinking the religious Kool-Aid. So as soon as I got out, I was like, bye. (laughs) I mean, I wasn't mean or I didn't even, I thought people who believed in God and religion were still good people, but I was definitely not doing that. And then you get a PhD in gender and religion and I'm like, no, for sure I'm out. (laughs) So I will tell you, and this is, gosh, this is a story I've never thought I would tell publicly, but it is a true story. When our, um, you know, I was pregnant with our second son, the one who's visually impaired when I graduated with my PhD and he was born early and at about eight weeks old, he contracted RSV and he was only four pounds and gosh, I feel emotional. He ended up going into system failure. He was on life support the doctors came to us. He was in total system failure. He'd been on life support for 15 days. And they said, um, I'll never forget this. He came into the hallway, the doctor, and he said, it's time to go say goodbye. And my, sorry. No. My husband said, "Um, what are you saying? He's not going to make it. And he said, it's in God's hands. We've done everything we can. I didn't believe in God. (laughs) 
<laughs> and all of a sudden I had this flashback of this, all this stuff I had learned, not just through religious studies, but through my childhood and how I used to believe before I was so injured. And um, I said a prayer and I was like, if you exist, I need some serious help. Like I, this, I don't know if this is even real, but I, this was last ditch effort. And um, I called on some people, my husband, you know, attended church and I called on some people and I was like, we need, we need a blessing for this baby. And they blessed him and they commanded him to live. And we took him home three days later. I was like, crap, there's a God. (laughs) (laughs) Crap. And I I spent the next 10 years restructuring my belief system internally because I was like, I cannot deny what happened. There is a power greater than myself. There is something so much bigger. And so I had to learn to grapple with all of that. And what I can tell you now is I absolutely, I know that there is a God and that this God, and I don't even want to gender, it is so loving and so much bigger and so much greater than we can even imagine. And if you access that through woo, or you access that through an organized structure, I don't care. I just want you to feel that love. And I know it's there and I've been the recipient of it. And I have so much more joy leaning into that than I had ever before when I was so logical and so adamant that there was nothing else. I always say there's a difference between church, religion, and all of that. But what you're tapping into is that is spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge pillar of whole health. And whether or not you believe in the traditional, quote, God of Christianity, but believing in something bigger than yourself and believing in a purpose and a uh, something in the universe that is, I think, so important in healing, in overall, just, I, I don't know. I, I've i been tapping into that and I've been trying to understand and learn from others and hear their stories to see the value and the importance of spirituality in the process of, of all of this. Absolutely. So, wow. Thank you for sharing oh, that. Story. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so this win of him just getting his thing, I mean, oh, he won in life. He's turned 15. Like yeah. that's 15 more years than. <laughs> well, and he wasn't diagnosed as blind until three months after we took him home. And literally oh. I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I didn't care. <laughs> he was alive. And so I think there's a greater purpose. And I always say like, it happens for a reason to teach us something. And so what is that lesson we can learn from it? Yeah. And I really do feel, especially teaching religious studies all those years, you know, I identify as Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ and it's okay if you don't, it's okay if other people believe in something else. I, and the research also bears this out because of course I love research. So I'm like, you know, religion. <laughs> That's why you love Joe Dispenza. I was like, he's yeah, the only exactly. one who scientifically yeah, like... can explain meditation. So anyone out there who doesn't believe in meditation, Joe Dispenza, because yeah. he's actually the data. Exactly. And, and the data shows that when you have a spiritual system, a spiritual belief and your spiritual health is intact, not only does it help with trauma, it helps with your overall mental health. It connects you to something greater than yourself. Think about if our world is just us, 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 
And, and yes, we can serve other humans and humans are wonderful. When we open that up to a universe of love and connection and unity, that is such a different sense. It's so much more expansive. It is, it can be healing for sure. Wow. Oh, (laughs) thank you for sharing that. And oh my goodness. (laughs) Absolutely. Wow. Um, so I, I, I'm at a loss for more questions. So, but I guess just a couple of final things is like, I know we talk about like changing. So I'm really interested in epigenetics too. And I know like trauma can really affect the way your DNA stress changes our DNA. And so to be able to heal that stress can change our DNA. How do you see that? I guess, like, can you explain that a little and how would that help like future generations? How can we, by focusing on healing ourselves, like Mm. how does that change? That is an excellent question. So one of the things that one of the great pieces I took away from the research we did in Rwanda is the generational trauma. And that directly has to do with epigenetics and our our shift in our DNA. And so at the time when we were researching there, um, they were also working with the university of in Sweden. I think it, I can't remember which university it was, but it's all in the literature now that what we were seeing is the first generation of genocide survivors. Yes, there was a lot of pain and they were working really hard to transition. The second generation who were born after the genocide had higher rates of drug abuse and alcohol abuse. And so that when the university in Switzerland, um, I believe it was Switzerland, it could have been Sweden. Ah, I wish I could, could remember exactly right now. When they started looking at the DNA, they saw the markers for trauma continue. And of course, now we know through the research, um, I think it's the book is called The Telomar Effect. We know that trauma can go down up to eight generations, those changes wow. in the DNA. So as a parent, this is the thing that, this is why I'm obsessed with recovery and healing because yes, my kids, I'm sure they have some markers, but let's subdue and minimize as much as we can through our own work so that we don't have to pass this on and on and on. When you start to address the trauma and when you start to address the toxic stress, then your body changes back into a more healthy adaptation. And that's going to also translate for generations. And so what you really do is gifting future generations Oh, wow. And then I was going to say by you changing, because you already had your kids. So it's not like you're passing on that DNA. How does that then affect them? Do you have to work with them also? Like, is that I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, how do we, how do we solve generational trauma? Oh, totally. Yes. This is something that keeps me up at night. So on the day to day on the, you know, on the ground, of course, I'm trying to minimize my own outward behaviors, right? But what I'm also doing is I'm trying to work on my internal nervous system. And because we know through co-regulation that the nervous systems speak to each other. So even though I might be saying calmly, put on your shoes, if I'm about to lose my crap, my nervous system is sending out those messages and they're receiving them. Right. And so it's for me, I think 10 years ago, I thought if I talked in a calm voice, that was enough because my outward behaviors were manifesting as if I was calm. But what I know now and what we know about the nervous system is yes, that's a great first step. We don't want to yell. We don't want to hit. And the next step is to go in and do that internal work so that we actually can feel calm. 
Um, and that's where meditation and breath work and, you know, trauma-informed yoga comes in, somatic experiencing, EFT tapping. There's a lot of tools to regulate your nervous system so that you can speak nervous system to nervous system with your child. And then long-term, the hope is that as we're raising these kids and they're learning, they're seeing us, you know, I meditate with like our son who has autism. We meditate probably three times um, a week at night before he goes to bed, five minute meditations for him. We're not doing four hour Joe Dispenza with him. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Baby steps, but we are modeling how to solve a problem, not from a place of shame and behavioral shame, but from a practical stance. And that is going to translate. But also if we teach them to regulate themselves when they have children, that's going to help their DNA markers. And those telomeres, the ends of the DNA that get frayed are going to be able to repair and not continue that cycle. So Wow. Okay. So I could talk to you for hours, but I should probably wrap this up. Oh my goodness. I've learned so much. This has been so helpful. And I really appreciate you sharing your story. Um, To wrap things up, I wanted to ask, what is your mom's superpower that you gained once you became a mom that makes you better at either business or life? Oh, hundred percent losing my ego, losing my ego, just letting it go. I used to see those kids in the grocery store in their costumes before I had kids. And I'd be like, that's sad. <laughs> now I'm like, here's your costume. Let's go. <laughs> Losing the ego. <laughs> oh, I love that. And where can we find you online? Okay. We on Instagram, we are at mending trauma. Um, our website is mendingtrauma.com. We're on LinkedIn and I think TikTok and Pinterest, all the places, mending trauma. <laughs> and take her quiz uh, yes. because you'll be surprised, like myself, that I apparently have trauma. And also, or toxic stress. Or toxic stress, which you know what? That makes a lot more sense. I definitely think I have that. Yeah. Um, and go subscribe to her podcast also. Um, and I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you so Wonderful. much, Amy, for joining today. I really oh, appreciate course. it. Thank you, Stephanie. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Mommy's on a Call. Your support means the absolute world to me. You can find the show notes for this episode and other goodies over at mommiesonacall.com. And if you enjoyed this episode or have gotten value from the podcast, I would be so grateful if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review so that we can reach and empower more moms all over the world together. Thank you so much again, Mommy Pod, and I will see you here next time.